Right now, as, as you hear this, there are more than 100 million people displaced on our, on our planet due to war or disaster. And that, just to give you a scale of reference, that, that's more than those displaced after the Second World War. And more than half of those people displaced today, well, they're still within their countries of origin, which is an interesting complexity. All of those people, regardless of, of, of where they are or the circumstances that they find themselves in, have one commonality. They need shelter. Uh, and getting that shelter designed, built in place, uh, and having those structures meet uh, the needs of those people, that is a hugely complex undertaking. It's more than giving someone a tarp and a cordless drill and saying, have at it. Where does uh, the world of design, for example, come into play here? This is where people like my next guest come in. And now his name is Brett Moore. He leads the Global Shelter Cluster at the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, UNHCR. I'm sure that he is a, a busy man with no shortage of tasks. Brett, welcome. Thanks, Jonathan. Wait, Pleasure to be here. The Global Shelter Cluster, UNHCR. <laughs> when, when people ask you at a, at a party, what do you do? What, what, what do you say? How do you describe it? I try to keep it as simple as possible because it can be a long story. <laughs> um, but basically, I, I work for the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. So one of its mandates is humanitarian shelter. So giving shelter for people in that are forcibly, forcibly displaced refugees and IDPs. So it's coordinating that with other actors and agencies. I suspect there are fairly predictable and routine phases in these sorts of operations. There is a disaster, there is immediate need, but then there is an ongoing need to re-establish people's lives and their circumstances around that. That must take a particularly long period of time. It can take a very long time and I guess it depend, it's dependent upon the magnitude of the disaster, the amount of support that people receive and I guess the complexity within the country. I mean, some countries have a reasonable coping mechanisms at community level, government support, functioning institutions, uh, functioning private sector, that kind of thing, whereas other countries have far less of that and are much more dependent on humanitarian aid. So, yes, mm. indeed, you can have a very long kind of humanitarian moment. The, the real idea is to try to minimise that and get onto a kind of recovery or development trajectory as soon as possible. Because there are some parts of, of the world, and I guess this is in part because the circumstances that create the, the human need are almost are pretty in, intractable, but where that, that sense of emergency accommodation almost appears permanent for, for tens of thousands, if not millions of people. It does indeed. It depends largely whether it's a context of internal displacement. We call it IDP, internally displaced person or people. Mm. Um, so whether it's an IDP issue or a refugee issue, I mean, people that that are suffering after disaster or conflict, yes, they need shelter, but how that's provided, the context within that works and the kind of pol particular political situation around it varies greatly. If you cross the international border, yep. you're a refugee. And with that comes a particular set of protection issues, legal issues, obligation. For example, if there was, God forbid, a disaster hits Melbourne and we're all forced to go to Sydney to seek relief or support, we're citizens. Heaven forbid. God forbid. <laughs> <laughs> but if we have to go to PNG to seek help or New Zealand, we're not citizens. 
but so the, that's a legal barrier. But that internal situation could be complicated too. I mean, if, if we are, for example, in Melbourne, part of a religious minority, not in favour more broadly in the country or in Sydney where we are seeking shelter, that complicates the, the, the nature of our reception. That's very true. I think that that really is getting to the point of why this work is inherently very complicated because there is the nature of the disaster or the conflict itself that has forced displacement. Mm, what happened here? That's yeah. right. But often it has its precursor or its roots in decades of poverty and often that is biased according to um, ethnic or religious issues, um, clan, tribe or something else. So often there's a real trajectory that's led to an exacerbated poverty or a conflict and a susceptibility for the most vulnerable to be disproportionately affected after a disaster as well. I guess there is a common element, though, that, that people, regardless of their circumstance, want to go home. Yes. More often than not, people want to return home and the principles by which we work are that that's the first option we always promote. Return home when voluntary, and safe to do so. They're part of what we call the guiding humanitarian principles that are enshrined in international humanitarian law, different treaties and global mechanisms. The second being integration at the point of displacement mm -hmm. and the third being like a third, third country resettlement. So there's different kinds of pathways which people can be on. Sometimes it's very hard when it's conflict because the first option, that is return to the point of origin is very hard to achieve if the conflict isn't resolved. I want to take this back to the, the, the architecture design idea because design as a, as a broad science lends itself to solving these complex logistic issues. I think we see design in its broader sense where it can be looking at the house or the shelter as an artefact that requires the input of technical, material and other kinds of issues. Mm -hmm. But also we look at design and I think of design as something which is a problem solving process to help get us through complicated logistic political, social, and other kinds of issues. It's a different way of thinking through problems. So it is problem solving through the mechanism of application of different kinds of resources and different kinds of analysis and thinking. And I sometimes feel that architecture is a nice balance because it is at its essence, the melding of a humanitarian, or sorry, a humanist approach and a scientific mm. approach. It's fundamentally about how people live and how people use the built environment. The cornerstone is human need. That, that's that's, right. that's integral to that process. Yeah, yeah. Are there UNHCR warehouses somewhere full of the sort of the basic kit that, that goes anywhere when disaster strikes? Indeed there are, what, yeah. What's in that basic um, kit? In, in that <laughs> kit, it varies. We, we've, we've now tailored it a little bit according to the specific geography. So, for example, mm. when we look at data, we know that most of what we call hydrometeorological events occur in Southeast Asia, that is, floods, storms, these kinds of things. I'm glad you explained that. <laughs> so we pre-position, we, we had warehouses in Southeast Asia. In other locations, for example, we have warehouses in Nairobi, in Dhaka, West Africa, um, in the Middle East, in Amman, in Jordan, uh, Brindisi, in Italy, 
in Malaysia as well. So we're spread out mm. in different places around the globe, and they vary slightly. Sometimes those warehouses are re replenished pretty frequently, because you know we've got an ongoing and unresolved issue with the Syria crisis. So there's a lot of relief material that still goes into that region. Some other regions. The stockpiles last for some time, so we have to keep them turned over because they do have a shelf life. But yes, we do have millions of items, um, and those items include, at its most basic, tent, tarpaulin, uh, toolkits. We have hygiene kits, basic food supplies as well, dry rations. There's uh, kits for women for for women's health, um, and there's also kits for children. There's education kits. How extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Syria, and I, I mean, that's such an interesting example, especially for organisations that rely on donor input or, or at least some sort of public awareness at some level. And with Syria, this is a, a conflict now of, of more than a decade old, and, and the people displaced likewise have been in those circumstances for a very long period. How I mean, how difficult... Is it to keep that focus? And I guess what sort of challenges does that sort of duration of, of unsettlement present? I think it occurs on a few different levels. The main thing to remember is that most people that are displaced because of the Syria crisis are in the surrounding countries, predominantly Turkey. So they bear the biggest brunt. And those refugee hosting countries have done an amazing amount of work in really supporting those people. It's not always the degree of the disaster or the conflict that gets the most uh, support. It is its geopolitical significance, its donor support, its mm. strategic location, that kind of thing. The longevity of the displacement, you have, you know, a kind of disproportionate, you know, there's increase and then it decreases after some time because, you know, they're all beholden to annual budget cycles and things like that. So it's very hard for us to maintain support for really critical long-term issues, for example, around the Great Lakes in Africa, Lake Chad Basin, the Sahel displacement issue. There's a lot of displacement in sub-Saharan Africa across Mali, Senegal, Niger, Chad, I was in northeast Nigeria in October and November. That area, there's more than a million displaced refugees and IDPs, a lot of people moving because of the conflict in that area, but it really would reach the international headlines. At what point do people in, I mean, let's say in a, in a camp in Turkey, come to see that as, as some sort of an ongoing reality? This is now where I am. We put a lot of effort into the design of, of refugee camps. I mean, they're still fundamentally very rudimentary, but what we're moving toward now is much more using the best of urban planning and design principles. Hmm. If they do get upgraded over time, that the spacing, the design, the layout facilitates that. There's a lot of reticence in the beginning because, of course, the host country does not always want refugees in camps in their country for a protracted period. There's an impetus to make this an unappealing place. That's right. You make them to meet the basic needs, but nothing more than that. But then there's a real politic that kicks in after a while and many countries where people have been dislocated for a long time. After third, third year, fifth year, seventh year, ten years more resources can come in from a different set of donors, development donors who want to put in permanent water supply, improve roads, put in clinics, hospitals, these kinds of things. So we find that much more in Africa, I think, where the borders are a bit more permeable. I'm intrigued by the, the sort of urban design elements mm. of that. I mean, what sort of ideas from that discipline come into play? We did a lot of analysis 
of different camps in different countries. We had around 500, 600 camps in more than 45 countries. Some mm. of them had been occupied a very, very long time and really started emulating traditional villages. We solicited the input of a big architecture and urban planning firm from New York called Ennead Architects, and they did some what we call longitudinal analysis. They visited four or five camps in four or five countries, produced some big spatial studies and other kinds of data. And then from their work and our work, we distilled it down to what we call the 10 guiding principles for master planning. So it's pretty basic stuff. Go on. Yeah. Well, tell me 10. ten. There was at least 10, <laughs> but it's basically trying to say, okay, how do, we, how do we deal with these things using the most basic principles we can to get better long-term outcomes? I'm intrigued by that idea that the various um, sort of ancient schemes of human organisation will manifest in mm. that sort of duress, that mm -hmm. we are people that are inclined to behave and arrange ourselves in certain ways. Yeah. And that holds true? I think when we look at self-settlement, it does. And we've done a lot of analysis around that. It's very interesting. What we found, though, also when we go in there and just put draw a big grid and give everyone a tent, that when that issue isn't resolved and that displacement becomes formalised, you end up with some scenarios like we see, for example, in the Middle East with Palestinian camps that are now formalised into towns. And you've got these very, very confined, what were camps, now three storeys high with concrete buildings, with small streets that you can't go down, you can't get a fire truck down there, for example. So we have to be very careful about formalising the informal. Hmm. It doesn't get us where we need to be. It doesn't provide livable conditions in the long term. Ukraine, um, I imagine, is a, a country taking a fair bit of your attention right now. Yeah. And that, of course, is complicated by the fact that of, of a, a live hot war mm. um, and all the perils around that. Yes. Which, how do, how do you cope with the act, extra, extra dangers and pressures of something mm. like war? Over time, you, you become quite used to working in conflict contexts. I think that we need to see the difference, I guess, between how things are reported versus what's really happening on the ground. And there mm -hmm. are some differences, you know. So there's three scenarios, really, for those that are displaced, the active conflict, where it really is emergency relief, and we don't get quite in that real hot zone. And then there's the area where, the, the deoccupied area, where people are doing basic repairs to their homes and we're supporting that. So we're, we've got a big program there. We're reaching hundreds of thousands of people with basic repairs, supporting them basic repairs with materials, with cash. And I've been to many of those locations to, to see what's happening and help sh shape the response in that area. It's such a lesson too that, that, that one's reality is so dependent on where one is. And yeah. I mean, do you have a do you have a sense of you know the the, the state of the world as as we sit here? You're someone yeah. who's who's experienced so much more of it than most of us. I think that we are in this period of really chronic fragility, and it. I think what was mm. once seen as a humanitarian issue and the plight of developing countries, we see that fragility ourselves. I think that. After the bushfires three years ago, the devastating bushfires, even in Australia, the bushfires, and then soon after that, hot on the heels of that, COVID began. And we didn't know where we were going. So that mm. fragility, I don't... I think people felt comfortable that we were immune from that in Australia, but I think that it has a lot of manifestations in uprooting 
political stability, social stability, a sense of place and awareness and what is normal or not normal or safe or not safe. So I think its ramifications are global. It's hard to see that that fragility becoming any more any more certain, any more stable in the in the short term. No. I think we have to be prepared and I think that the kind of skills that you need to work in the humanitarian system, those skills are very much needed in everyday life, actually. I think that the average architect out there needs to understand and work more within the context of fragility a rapidly changing environment, areas of cities or different states that seemed safe and seemed reasonable. We have to really rethink what we're doing, how we're doing it, where we're building, what we're building, what's safe, what's not safe. How do we mm. keep people and prosperity on the radar when we're you know, battered in different parts of Australia, battered by you know, storms and floods cyclically every three months, four months? bushfires that are devastating instead of them being every 50 years they're every three or four years so the age of precariousness precariousness brett thank you and um strength to your arm <laughs> thank you jonathan <laughs> unhcr's brett moore he leads uh, their global shelter cluster it's the blueprint for living abc rn abc rn helps you understand the world Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.